You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today, we have with us in the studio, Katie Standifer. Katie is a writer and teacher in Tucson, teaching independent, intimate, creative writing classes that help people explore their experience of sexuality, illnesses, or trauma. We'll be right back with Katie, but first, let's talk about brain fry. So, (laughs) we were just talking before the show, and I was like, I haven't even thought of my topic. Does this sound unprofessional, everybody? Yes. So, I, I am just at loose ends of, like, trying to do too many things. So, last weekend, my boyfriend did a huge, wonderful conference called The Healing Power of Music. Amazing. Wonderful speakers, wonderful experience, and really... For me, a lot of it is being out in front and checking people in, but also seeing people's experience of that and their joy. And then from there, running into my week, so Sunday, I'm like, oh, yeah, good. So this week has been a little bit hectic. I'm hanging a show for my students on Saturday. They are having a show on the topics of ethnicity, gender, and the border. So kind of a big deal, a lot of work. And then we have these big, beautiful portraits and they're talking about anxiety and depression and their experience of nature and life and being bullying and just being really honest, making these big portraits, like like symbolic self-portraits. And that stuff really touches my heart. And I feel it's important to put the work on display and have people come and experience it and have the students have a chance to talk about stuff that's both in the news all the time and their daily life. That being said, I spent six and a half hours yesterday and it's not quite hung. <laughs> I'm still working away. And, and it's, it, it is a, it's an amazing experience to have them have a chance to put their work up and have it on display and come to an opening. And I love that. But rolling from that, next week, I'm going to France. <laughs> So for an artist and writer's retreat with my mom, which is amazing, wonderful. So it's just like a a brain fry. Like, I am not coherent. You all going to excuse me for any, like, gaps and totally. I I just can't, I can't track and I've got, like, 20 hundred things to do. And I'm just going to do the ones that are at present mind and that's it. Just going from one thing to the next. And I know you all can identify with this. And depression is something that also gives me what I call brain fry, which is just not being able to collect your thoughts and organize and not being able to get things done and being stuck. And I, this, I don't have the luxury of climbing into bed and never getting out again right now. That's not really an option this week. I have too much to do. And as you all know, I'm not feeling very depressed lately anyway. But I think that And all sorts of mental illnesses fall into this, but depression is one where your ability to feel collected and and able to do things just disappears. I'm feeling that, I think, through sheer exhaustion, and I'm going to get through this with a force of will, but I'm really, really grateful that, that I don't have that sinking 
depression in addition. It just wouldn't happen. This year is fine. It's, you know, I'm glad it's a good year and I'm going to get a lot done. So on that note, I hope that your brains are firing and their synapses are making the jump <laughs> connecting this week one or not. <laughs> and uh, love to you all. Today we have with us in studio Katie Standifer. Katie is a writer and teacher in Tucson, teaching independent, intimate, creative writing classes that help people explore their experience of sexuality, illness, or trauma. Hello. Welcome to the Depression Session, Katie. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. Thanks so much for being here. So what's new for you? What's going on in your life right now? It's a really exciting time for me. I'm right at a place where a lot of projects I've been working on for a long time are coming to fruition, and probably most of all, the teaching work that I do. And the teaching work that I do comes out of my own personal journey, and I'm sure that's something we'll be talking about today. But these classes are just so rich, and on Sunday... I hosted a reading for my alumni of the class, and I shouldn't say the class, the classes. <laughs> and so we had 13 readers reading about sexuality, illness, uh, experiences of sexual assault and molestation. And that might sound a little down, but actually it was incredible to see everybody holding space for those types of stories together. It's been a really meaningful week in terms of seeing what can happen when people make art out of their difficult experiences. And having the space to do that. Yeah. And that's why I teach. Exactly. Right? Exactly. As I was walking up the stairs and saw what was hanging, I thought, oh, I'm going to like this person. <laughs> <laughs> I think so much of depression for me is how we make meaning out of what is dark and how we turn darkness actually into the stuff that makes life worth being here. Strangely, there's like an act of alchemy that can transpire. And I see that as my work. And that's, that's the magic of authenticity. I've been thinking about that a lot because, you know, with, with students, sometimes you have to guide a little bit. And I just kept saying your experience, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Think about your experience of this topic. What is your experience of your ethnicity? Yeah. What is your experience yeah. of living on the board? Yeah. It, it, there's no judgment on that. Like, whatever it is. That's right. What's your experience of gender? Yeah. And what's so interesting in writing terms is that sometimes people turn in essays that have a real backbone around gender or ethnicity, but it feels like it's coming from the outside. It's not completely authentic. There's some level of honesty that they have yet to sink into. And the the ideas can be good, but feel a little tinny. And, and you can't get away from that when you see it on the page. And so it opens the space to have the conversations that say, what is your more personal experience with this? Even if the ideas that you've accumulated, whether from activist communities or school, those ideas may be really important, but how do we infuse it with really the passion of you yourself? And I, I love writing as a way that, just as a method that makes that type of seeing possible. And so group writing becomes a sort of deepening process communally. And, and I find that the conversations that come out of having a topic, actually, are very rich because everybody experiences things differently, but there are threads that follow through them. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about sexuality, illness, and trauma all, because we have such ideas about what it means to be sexual from our culture. We have deep ideas about 
illness and when it is and isn't appropriate to talk about it and in what ways we're allowed to talk about it. And we don't do a good job of making meaning from it in in those social guidelines. And then trauma is almost the worst one of all. Sex assault really places us into some easy categories. And I think there's a wonderful writer named Leslie Ryan who writes in this essay, The Other Side of Fire, that I actually used as my title for the trauma writing class. She writes that while victimhood can be empowering because it it essentially places someone who has been hurt or uh, been the subject of violence in a morally superior position. So victimhood is powerful, but it's also something to be moved through, that if we stay there too long, it corrodes us. So, so much of learning to write these stories, again, is moving away from the tinny, easy version into these richer truths that I think really feed us in a different way. Well, that's a perfect note on that note. What's the story of your depression? I think of myself as someone predisposed to melancholy, to nostalgia, to some of the bedfellows of depression. And when I was young, I was depressed, really beginning in elementary school for significant periods of time much worse in middle school and then much, much worse in high school. And when I look back at those depressions, they really bring to me two different experiences of the body that I have learned to pay attention to as an adult, which have really changed my relationship to depression when it comes. And one of those relationships is just what does it mean for my body to feel good? And the unfortunate truth was I was born in the Chicago suburbs and the sky is gray for eight months of the year, not even like an interesting storm cloud gray, just a flat canvas. And that low light was really devastating for me. And it's funny now, even when I travel, I know that I have to start getting careful around the second or third day around the choices I make, because if I'm in a place with that gray, I'm just going to start not functioning at my best. So that was a part of it. You know, it was the 80s and 90s. And my mother, bless her, fed us a lot of easy to open foods (laughs) that I think contained a lot of toxic materials or not very nutritious materials. So factors like that I've learned as an adult, I have to be really careful about making sure I'm eating whole vegetable, good food uh, sort of things. And really staying connected to local agriculture, having my food be meaningful to me. So there's a way in which the I, I grew up with a body that was invisible, yet a body that was in charge. And some of those things that you can't really be aware of as a kid set up the foundation and just make it that much more likely that you'll tip over your edge. I think the other thing that really impacted my young adulthood was trauma, one of which was having a family member who was uh, really struggling herself and therefore sending a lot of violent words into the house, um, being fairly abusive to me in particular. And she left the house when I was in high school and that was stabilizing for me, although it was difficult for the family for other reasons. And then in middle school, I was the girl who was overdeveloped. And so I had boys following me down the hallway, taking uh, sanitary pads out of my backpack and throwing them around the hallway and talking about my breasts. And so there was a sense of being under siege and being unsafe in my body. And 
you know, now I have about 30 hours of training at the Arizona Trauma Institute, and I've gotten really interested in this question of what trauma means for that sort of baseline or foundation that we approach the world with. And the truth is, trauma is not the event itself. Trauma is not experiencing the mean words or being sexually assaulted. Trauma is the sympathetic nervous system's response. And when the sympathetic nervous system is repeatedly turned on, we live in our reptilian brains. And it's really hard to experience the world as big and complex and gorgeous if you are stuck in fight, flight, or freeze. And so I know that just having a lot of stress hormone in my blood and being in a place that was not set up in a way that supported me, (laughs) it seems very inevitable that I would struggle with depression in the way I did. And I really began to dig myself out in high school through writing. I um, was spending a month each summer I work hard all year and then spend a month each summer backpacking in Wyoming. And one other piece of Chicago that really didn't support me was this sense of endless strip malls, the concrete, the lack of wildness. I felt myself to be wild, but there was no wildness around me. And so to have this month each summer of wildness and soak it in made it harder to go back to that other life especially now thinking about how Wyoming was sunny (laughs) and dry, not this sad, gray, humid place. And so when I went back, I would basically just write that one month over and over and over again. And it was a way of inhabiting another reality, which I know is the way a lot of writers become writers. And I had been writing before that, but there was something about the survival that kicked in there. And I was lucky. I went to college in Colorado Springs, And so my whole life transformed um, when I was 18. I have never moved back to the Midwest since. I lived in Colorado Springs for four years for school, and then I moved up to Wyoming full time. And then I moved down to Boulder and then here to Tucson. So I have stayed where it is dry. I've stayed where it's sunny. I've stayed where I can be wild and where it feels more natural to get exercise endorphins. That's another thing that's really important to me. Um, but treadmills, falling into kind of the strip molly life, were not for me. So to have access to mountains, to rock climb and trail run, and I'm a bike commuter right now, so I arrive everywhere with endorphins. Those are all really foundational pieces. But I think a more important part of depression as I've become older is the experience of despair. And when I Graduated from college and moved up to Wyoming full-time. It was only a few months before I was sexually assaulted. And I had never had my first kiss, even at that point. I had been very uh, moralistic about this idea of saving myself, (laughs) which, you know, now I'm a sexologist and a sex educator, and I teach these sex writing classes, so everything comes around in a funny way. But the sex assault really forced me into my body in a way that I hadn't realized humans could be or needed to be. And I see the sex assault almost as a second birthday for me. The type of despair that I experienced after that is obviously marked by trauma and this concern of being unsafe all the time. But I think, too, it was a real fall into how little we actually control. And You know, I've been in a similar place of depression this winter 
that it feels like is just beginning to lift. It's more the kind of depression caused by a big outside event that has this relationship to despair where things are suddenly not possible. And this this winter, I had a major heartbreak and then a major car crash and sprained my ankle while my <laughs> while I didn't have a car and so couldn't even get around on bike. And and I have a very wonderful therapist who really encouraged me to think about this through a more shamanic lens. How is what we're experiencing what the world is experiencing? How is what we are struggling with a fundamental thing humans struggle with? And there's something very powerful in that for me to be trapped in my house this winter, understanding that if I were in Aleppo, and I were a person who couldn't walk and didn't have my own car, I would be left behind during the siege. This is the type of vulnerability that people live with at every moment all over. So whatever lack of possibility I feel in my life is not the same necessarily. I don't want to um, create a false equivalency, but I do think that this is really the root of empathy. So sex assault was like, oh my God, wait, <laughs> what do you mean I can't control who I become? What do you mean I have to feel the danger of having a body and fully feel it. Because I think since those boys in middle school following me, I had done everything I could to not be in my body. That was really just the beginning. About a year later, I passed out in a parking lot. I found out I had a genetic arrhythmia. I did not have health insurance. I lived in a state with poor social services. And the way I ended up getting a cardiac defibrillator was to quit my life and move to Boulder, Colorado. And my sister's surgeon, um, she has the same condition. He said he would help me. And I had this very crazy period of five months waiting to get this device where I thought I was going to die every minute. And I did a lot of <laughs> lying in bed in this Boulder apartment drinking hot whiskey toddies. And there were many times I thought about killing myself in that period. And I think it's it's always a flag for me when I want to die that what I actually want is just so badly to live. And it's a sign of how deep despair can be that at the exact moment we so deeply crave living that we think it's so impossible that dying is better. So this experience of facing my own death as a 24-year-old, you know, no one could bear that with me. I didn't have friends who were my same age who were willing to be vulnerable enough to walk with me in that. A lot of my relationships collapsed. I had a really hard time with the partner I was with at the time. And, you know, my poor parents just wanted to <laughs> not have their daughter die. So they didn't want to consider that as a thing that could happen. To do that alone, to wake up after I finally did have the surgery and have this metal box above my breast to feel my body at every minute, to be so worried about the slightest heartbeat here or there that it could kill me. It, this changes you. And I think it's work that a lot of people do later in their lives. And I was 24. And about six months after my device was implanted, I went septic. So I had a bacterial infection invade my body. Uh, my organs were shutting down. I had a blood clot in my lung. Uh, I was in the hospital for several weeks. Um, shortly after I finished that up, the partner I was with at the time, uh, and I broke up, uh, which I think too is testament to that inability of someone who's young to really stay when death is present. I was never going to be the same. 
And there's a lot of talk around the way the wound becomes the gift. And I think we should never say that to people when they're in the deepest part of the pit. Someone actually said to me after my rape, at least it was you, which maybe they uh, were were that person who just had so much faith that I was going to turn this into a beautiful thing someplace down the road. But that's a horrible thing to say. And yet it is also true. I happened that winter in Boulder to get a job as a sex educator at a health clinic. And I started teaching sex ed full time in the suburbs, uh, sort of completing my own transformation. And by the time I applied to Master of Fine Arts programs, one of which was in Tucson, which is where I came, my personal statement said that I knew I needed time to write about sex and death. And so I arrived in Tucson and uh, I have been writing about sex and death. But the most amazing part of my work, obviously I love writing and I will always be writing, but I have to say that figuring out how to bring into conversation with each other people who have had experiences like I had and to be in the process of making beauty from it with them is unbelievable. I feel so blessed. And part of what I try to do in these classes is to create a space where the social barriers are something we talk about and the physiological barriers are something we talk about. And that's what led me to do some more work around trauma because I figured out that on one hand, there are lots of studies, mostly from a researcher named James Pennebaker, that writing about difficult topics is good for us. He theorizes that there's actually a, a mechanism where the body is holding back and spending energy holding stories back. And that when we write about difficult things, the body releases, the body sighs. So you see an improvement in immunological markers in his studies. He had undergraduates going to the health center less often. And the other side of that is that if we write about things that are traumatic too directly, we turn on the sympathetic nervous system again, and we sort of soak in cortisol and all these things that make it hard to get up again the next day. They're the things that, to me, that's where I'm going to treat people in ways I don't want and add to my own despair and depression. It's where I'm going to get really befuddled and have brain fry, as you were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, I have to say that writing has been my healing light through my life and also holding space for other people to do the same is what pulls me out of my despair most often now. Wow. Thanks so much for your story. Thank you. I want to follow up with a couple of things. One is how can people get in your classes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's flyers up around town right now at the uh, acupuncture clinics and at Exo Rose Company. My website is www katiestandifer.com. So K-A-T-I with no E. Standifer is S-T-A-N-D-E-F-E-R. You can also Google uh, Katie writing classes Tucson and usually I come up right at the top. Yeah. I um, just was thinking that at the end it is so healing for people to be able to express themselves. Yeah. That's why I started the meetup group, the depression session. Yes. Tucson meetup group just so people once a month can get together and say... Here's where I am. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's exactly. the holy activity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I get it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I have to say, yeah, <laughs> just a couple weeks ago, I had to um, cancel something at the last minute because I was having such a mental breakdown in being stranded in my life without this car, trying to make so many things happen. And the person who 
I had to cancel with was a former student. And years ago, she was really struggling with bipolar disorder. And I gave her a very long extension in this class and was willing to give her an incomplete and work with her. And I just started laughing in my bed after she granted clemency for me to not show up to this thing, because I was like, this is, this is community. This is the powerful the most powerful interaction that we can have that like, oh my God, what goes around comes around. <laughs> it's true. There, that, that's another, that actually gets to another point I want to talk about, which is the metaphysical. Yeah. You know, that my boyfriend always says, everything's metaphysical. <laughs> but that what, you know, this, this idea that what you're experiencing isn't just a solo run of an experience, but that it is, you know, you can relate the things that are happening right now in your life to like a more global picture. Oh, like yeah. Who are we as oh, a species? Yeah. And what is that experience on a larger level and even, you know, spiritual level of like, you, you know, the shaman, the shaman's journey of like, mm-hmm. here's another thing to throw you <laughs> Exactly. That's not enough. I'm going to break your ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And also how the metaphysical comes around to be embodied. I think we really underestimate what our nervous systems are up to. And I think in the current political climate, we are sensing a lot more things than we can pinpoint. And so things like depression or anxiety are responses to every stimuli we come into contact with. And we've proven through research, we don't consciously know all those stimuli. We can't name them all. And so there's a type of wisdom that the body brings us that has to be honored right now. You're not crazy. If you feel crazy in this time, (laughs) you are right on point. And we're so used to turning away from the body that that's a hard message to get unless you're with people who have been forced to pay attention to their bodies. Yeah, and that's another that's another point I wanted to get to, which is this this thing of our bodies and our relationship to our bodies. I don't think in the culture in the U.S. right now we're very embodied at all. No. I think about people walking down the street, and one's on their iPod, one's um, texting, and the other ones, you know, plugged into some other device. You know, so that we're we're having a there's this third space we mm. are inhabit all the time. We're always here and there at the same time. And this third space dominates a lot. And it's a very passive space. And it's an unembodied space. Yes. And there are all these, you know, currently there are all these studies showing like the ways that in which we entrain with other people with our brain waves. Yes. And even our heart rhythms. Yeah. There's something that happens in a group that does not happen online. That's right. Or I don't think it does. That's I mean, right. Let me do studies. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I should say I have a dear, dear friend with a chronic illness who is really limited in the types of things she can take on day to day. Online communities, especially in terms of finding other people with the same chronic conditions, have been an absolute lifeline. Being able to access people who are not in your small community that doesn't understand, (laughs) full of doctors who don't understand, right? To be able to really access that larger tribe that may not be present, that's the real promise of the internet to me. And yet, at the same time, it is a radical act to bring bodies into communion with each other now. And I I think of these... Turn off your devices. That's right. I think of these classes almost as a new form of church for the non-religious, that we read aloud together, we study texts, we make meaning, we make our own things, we reflect, but mostly we convene each week as bodies. One of my students told me recently, I don't know if you knew 
that it took my whole energy for the day to get to that class, but it was worth it. There's, <laughs> there's a power there. Well, that is a perfect note to end the show on. Thanks so much. For Thank you. This was so fun. And for anyone who's interested, the next class starts March 22nd. Thanks. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you. You're listening to KTDTLP Tucson, Downtown Radio 99.1 FM.